This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the best-selling historian Andrea Wolf about her new book, Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. It's a revealing book, Andrea, not least because you show the past, living in the present, living in the past, investigating the thinking and writing of a small group of major German intellectuals gathered together in the decade of the 1790s in the medieval German university town of Jena. You find that although we probably don't know it, 230 years later, we share their view and understanding of the world as the creation of our poetic selves. Maybe you can begin with your own reasons for for writing the book. Yeah. um, First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, And I almost fell into this, the story of this book when I was doing the research for my previous book, The Invention of Nature, which was about the German scientist Alexander von Humboldt. And Humboldt had spent many, many months in the late 1790s in a small town in Germany called Jena, which is about 150 miles south of Berlin. And as I was doing my research in Jena and kind of walking through the streets, I saw these uh, name plaques on the houses uh, with all the names of the people who had lived there. And it was literally like seeing the who's who of German thinkers and philosophers and poets. And I couldn't quite believe that all these people had lived there um, at the same time. And the names, probably not that familiar to the English-speaking world, but they are the superstars in Germany. So because I was I was brought up in Germany and I had learned about these people in school. So there was, for example, Germany's most celebrated poet, Goethe. There was the playwright Friedrich Schiller, who was famed for his revolutionary play, The Robbers. There was a young poet called Novalis who played with death and darkness. There was a were a couple of um, famous philosophers. One was the stubborn philosopher Fichte, who put the self at center stage of his philosophy. There was the young philosopher Friedrich Schelling, who examined our relationship between us and nature. And then there was Hegel, who would become one of the most famous philosophers in the Western world. There were a couple of brilliant brothers, um, the Schlegel brothers, who were literary critics, and then the Humboldt brothers, um, Alexander von Humboldt, the scientist, and Wilhelm von Humboldt, who would become the founder of the first university in Berlin. And then there were some pretty extraordinary women. Um, One of them was Caroline Schlegel, and I hope we're going to talk in much more detail about her later. So I saw all these names um, on the houses, and I wanted to know why they had all come together at the same time in this kind of tiny little town. I mean, it was very small back then. It was like four and a half thousand um, inhabitants. So for about 10 years, Jena became the kind of center of Western philosophy and, and ideas. And what I found was this, an extraordinary story of radical ideas, ideas about the creative power of the self, about the true meaning of freedom, but also a story that reads like one big soap opera. So there's a lot of sex and scandals and gossip. So it's this this brilliant group basically 
put the self at the center stage of their thinking and change the way how we think about us, the world and nature. And their individual experience became their guiding light. light. And, and they use their own lives really as a kind of lab to, to test this philosophy of the self. And they, so we, we can kind of say really that the French revolutionaries changed the political landscape of Europe, but the the Jena set, this is how I called them because they're all together in Jena, they really incited a revolution of the mind that we can still, you know, feel today. And at the heart of this book is the tension between the, you know, the exciting possibilities of free will, but the pitfalls of selfishness. And and it's a balancing act that we still have to do today. And And the reason why I'm interested in history is that I, you know, I want to know why we are who we are today. So that's that's why I, you know, look back to where we come from. So in my previous books, I've looked at the relationship between humankind and nature to understand why we've destroyed so much of our, our, our planet. But I also realized that it's not enough just to look at the connection between us and nature because we live in a society that is so obsessed with the self. So I wanted to ask questions such as, why have we become such a selfish species? When did we become such a selfish species? When did we assume or expect that we have the right to, you know, determine our own life? And when did we first ask to, you know, how can we be free? And the answers to all these questions I found in, in Jena, and that's really what this book is about. Well, it's, it's, it's a truly wonderful book, I think. The um, Talk a little bit more about Jena, where it is in relation to Weimar, what kind of mise-en-scene is it in the 1790s? I mean, shops, booksellers, a crossroads of European postal routes, I mean, and, and a freedom that doesn't exist uh, in, in the society at large. I mean, in the 1790s, Europe is still duchies and monarchies and Holy Roman Empire and the state has all kinds of ways of telling people how they can think, what they can eat, when they can marry, where they can dance, how they can travel and so on. So ex explain what the, the ideas of freedom coming out of the French Revolution are running counter to the the way the world is in in the 1790s outside of Vienna. To really understand what they did, what the Yenas had did, we obviously need to understand the world in which they lived in. And the, the, it was a world that was so different to ours that it's you know, quite hard to imagine. So this is a Europe which is mostly ruled still by absolutism. So by rulers who can decide pretty much about every single detail in their subject's life. So they can refuse marriage permissions. They can uh, decide what kind of profession their subjects have. They can, sometimes they can sell their subjects as mercenaries to other, to other nations. Philosophers get censored for their ideas. Writers get banned from writing. In parts of Europe, there's still the feudal system um, happening. So this is a system that binds people to lands and lords like slaves. So the world in which the Jena set was born into was one of despotism, control and inequality. And then in 1789 comes the French Revolution, which is a which is an event that's so dramatic that 
you know, almost everybody in Europe is somehow affected by this because when the French revolutionaries declare all men as equal, they promise a new social order that is built on the power of ideas. And with this, philosophy becomes something that is a weapon because this is a, this is a new state, this is a new republic that is built on the idea of freedom and on the ideas of philosophy. So so philosophers realize that their words are as powerful as weapons. And then in Germany itself is at the end of the 18th century, not a unified nation. It is a patchwork of 1500 um, states ranging from tiny principalities to powerful states such as Prussia and Austria. And, the, and this whole kind of patchwork is called the Holy Roman Empire. And Jena is part of a small duchy called the Duchy of Saxe Weimar, which is pretty much exactly in the center of the Holy Roman Empire. And um, the advantage of this fragmentation is that censorship is not that easily um, enforced in Germany because every state has different rules. So it's very different to centrally ruled countries such as France or England. And the, but everything in in Germany is fragmented and inward looking. So the the German imagination is really fed by books and by words. There are many more universities here. So there are around fifty universities compared, say, to two in England. The book trade in in Germany is four to five times larger than the one in England. There are almost every single German city has a reading society, has a lending uh, library. So ideas and arguments travel very easily in Germany at that time. And Jena itself is a small town. It's a university town, four and a half thousand inhabitants. It takes less than 10 minutes to cross. It's, it's, a, it's very much dominated by its university. There are almost 900 students. There are plenty of butchers, bakers, printers, bookbinders, lots and lots of taverns. And it's a it has a still a medieval feel to it. So there's an open market, there's a cobbled streets, there are crumbling town halls, uh, town walls. And it is a place that attracts more liberally minded thinkers and writers than any other place in Germany. And the reason for that is its university, which has a through kind of complicated inheritance law, is nominally controlled by four Saxon dukes, but with no one really in charge. So professors have the freedom there to teach pretty much what they want. So everybody who is in trouble with the authorities in their home states, they come to Jena. Um, so it attracts a very specific type of thinker. So and so this is this is basically the environment for the Jena set. They all, you know, many of them arrive from other from other states where they have been in trouble. Friedrich Schiller, for example, the the playwright, he had been imprisoned in his home state for writing the revolutionary play, The Robbers. So it's so they kind of assemble there, and it becomes this transient place of ideas, um, but also of love affairs, of scandals. And um, there's, there's a staggering quarter of all children um, that are born in Jena at that time are born out of wedlock, for example. So there's something going on. There's something in the air there. Talk about the woman Caroline who marries three times and is the brilliant sort of center of, of the 
wheel in in uh, Jena in 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 the seventeen nineties. I mean, I, I I had never heard of her prior to reading your book, and she strikes me as a truly formidable figure. I mean, fluent in many languages, a writer, an editor, a translator into German of Shakespeare's plays and Shakespeare's plays. You 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 point out. In German, are I mean, Caroline's translation of the plays is still the one in use in Germany, and and in Germany there are Shakespeare is performed more often these days in German than the plays are performed in England in English. Yeah, so Caroline is a really extraordinary woman, and kind of really written out of history. She is at the heart of the Jena set. She's at the heart of the first romantics. And so let me introduce her properly with all her names because she was called Caroline Michaelis Böhmer Schlegel Schelling. So she carried the name of her father, but also of her three husbands. But she refused to be restricted by the role that society had intended for women at that time. She was she was born in 1763. She was the daughter of a celebrated German scholar. She was beautiful. She was witty. She was educated, and she was fiercely independently, independently minded. And she married young. She was widowed at the age of 24. She then hung out with German revolutionaries um, and was imprisoned by the Prussians um, for being a sympathizer with the French Revolution. And not only that, in prison, she discovered that she was pregnant after a one-night stand with an 18-year-old French soldier. So quite something <laughs> for yeah. you know for the t- for the time when you know when as a woman you were not even you know allowed to be in a room on your own with a man so after her imprisonment she was treated like an outcast and then the young writer august wilhelm schlegel came to her rescue he married her uh, gave her a new name and with that a new beginning and took her in 1796 to jena where she becomes the heart of the jena set she's a she's a razor sharp critic. She dissects poems and plays and novels with profound knowledge. And her husband and the friends of the Yenaset begin to rely on her very analytical and literary mind. And and as you said, she becomes the editor of their their literary magazine, for example. She writes many, many reviews um, under her husband's name, and she translates together with her husband 16 Shakespeare plays. So this is the first verse translation of Shakespeare in Germany. And it's still the standard um, edition today. Of course, her name never made it into the book. So when you pick it up today, you just see her husband's name. But we know from letters and um, from diaries how they work together. I mean, they spent years working together doing this. And when you look at the, the, the manuscripts in the, in the archives, you can see both of their handwritings on the manuscript and how they, you know, some, you know, one of them writes, say, a verse, and then the other person kind of strikes it out, a word, and changes, a, you know, another word or a phrase. So it is a very collaborative effort. And not only that, it is August Wilhelm Schlegel's um, published lectures on Shakespeare that then 
resurrects Shakespeare in England. And these, these lectures are very much informed by his discussions with Carolina. So William Wordsworth, for example, said that it was a, it was a German critic who made them think correctly about Shakespeare again. So she is very, very important intellectually, but she also, she creates the physical space where the friends meet and work. And she she has an open marriage with her husband, so quite an unusual arrangement. And then a few years into, into their relationship, she begins an affair with Friedrich Schelling, who is a young philosopher, 12 years younger than she is, and, uh, and, a, and a friend of her husband. And But her husband doesn't really mind, and, and he laughs about it. And he says, you know, in, in time, she will move on to even younger men, and her next lover is still wearing a little sailor suit. And in the, in the end, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in the end, they get divorced, and she marries um, Schelling, which is, you know, her, her fourth surname. So she is almost... Because they they love this kind of communal way of working. They sit together, they write together, and she's almost... If they were an orchestra, she she would be the conductor who brings the score alive. It's very much her personality that determines the tempo and the rhythm of their discussions. But she's been written out of history, really. So so what I'm trying with this book also to kind of show is that the the ideas that the first romantics had and that would become so important later for the English romantics and for the American transcendentalists, a lot of that is part of their communal way of working. And Caroline is very much um, at the heart of that. Uh, so she's a figure like Madame de Stael. Is that fair to say? Well, she's she's very different. Madame de Stael is, is an aristocrat. She's wealthy, um, but is a great intellectual, of course, where Caroline comes from a, you know, Kind of middle class background. Um, she, they never, they never have a lot of money. She's not. She's de- definitely not live a life of kind of great privilege. So she really um, come. You know, it's her intellect that puts her in the spotlight. And there are other in, in this same decade of the seventeen nineties. There, there are other profound encounters. I mean, it, it's where Goethe first meets Schiller. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And when does Hegel arrive? And and what was the and and wasn't Kant in 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 Jena in in the early going? No, he was not there. Well, shall I start? Let me start with Goethe and Schiller because I think their friendship is something quite um, special. So Goethe is Germany's most famous poet. He became a super, literary super international literary superstar when he published his novel the sorrows of young Werther in the 1770s um it was a it was a novel about a a young man who is uh, deeply in love and it's an unhappy love story so he commits suicide and it has been said that it triggered a wave of suicides uh, in Europe. Um, so much so that Lord Byron later joked with Goethe and said that more men were killed by Werther than by the Napoleonic uh, Wars. So Goethe is this kind of young, dashing um, poet in the 1770s. But by the time the Jena set arrives, um, he's older. So he's he's older than them. He's in his mid-40s. They're all in their early and mid-20s. And he becomes something like their kind of almost stern and benevolent godfather. But he is, he's by 
then he's very much part of the administration of the small duchy. So he is the privy councillor to the duke. He is in charge of the theatre. He's in charge of the the mines. And he is pretty much depressed about the French revolutionary wars. And he had failed to produce anything remarkable for years. So his, his creative juices have really run dry at that time. And he meets in 1794, he meets Friedrich Schiller, who is a playwright. And they they are very, very different in temperament. So Schiller is this tall, gaunt looking man who's battling illnesses all the time, who has very erratic work hours. He He's an insomniac, so often he sleeps during the day, works through the night. He can only write with a drawer full of rotten apples in his desk. Don't ask me why, but he really liked the smell of that. And despite their differences, they become friends and it becomes one of the most fruitful literary friendships of all times, I think. They they worked together, they collaborated, they challenged each other, they edited each other. And it's almost like because they're opposing temperaments kind of it almost seems to like foster their creativity. So their friendship is very important. And then the kind of younger generation arise, attracted by these two men, because they're both very, very famous. Um, so they come because of them to Jena. And the younger generation is important for Goethe because their radical ideas inspire him and rejuvenate him, really. And, and he begins enters one of his most productive um, phases in his life. And the younger generation, in turn, worships him and puts him puts him on a pedestal. Is, is this the point in Goethe's life when he writes Faust? Yes, exactly. So he's he starts writing Faust in the 1770s, but he kind of gets stuck with it, so he puts it away. And then he... Um, so there's, for example, Alexander von Humboldt, who is also... So part of the Jena set, who's this kind of restless young scientist who really wants to understand how the kind of world hangs together. And it's it's interesting to see that whenever Alexander von Humboldt comes to Jena, shortly after that, Goethe unpacks his manuscript for Faust. And his protagonist, Faust, is very similar in character to Alexander von Humboldt. So he, is, he feels inspired by that, but also by their radical ideas. So a lot of the ideas that these young romantics have in their, in, their, in their philosophy kind of make it into Faust, and we can see these ideas in Faust. How does the talk now about the way that the romantic ideas and the radical ideas that are uh, f- f- fermenting in Jena in the 1780s, how does that move to what we know as the English Romantic movement. How does that come down to people like Coleridge and Wordsworth and then to Shelley and Byron and Keats? How, do, how does that work? How does that happen? So, so there, there are two things that happen in, in, at the same time, which I think are important for the English Romantics and for the American Transcendentalists. There's one, one is the philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who is quite a character he kind of teaches he teaches at the university with his with his riding boots on and whip in hand and he's really feared for his kind of volatile temper he shouts and he insults at the university at the university in Jena yes at the university of Jena exactly 
And the, the students adore him and they call him the Bonaparte of philosophy because he really revolutionizes the way we see ourselves. Because at a time when most of Europe is still held in the iron fist of absolutism, Fichte imbues the self with the most thrilling of all powers, with free will and self-determination. So he says that instead of, that he says there are no God-given or absolute truths. He said, the only certainty we have is that the world is experienced by the self. So he gives the self much greater power than before. And he he says that all, the, the source of all reality is the self. And he said, the self posits itself and brings itself into existence. So he declares the self almost as the supreme ruler of the world. So this is this is the one big philosophical idea, which we can obviously still feel today because the self has stayed center stage um, ever since. And then there's another philosopher, which is Friedrich Schelling, who is also a professor at the university um, at Jena. And he he's 23 years old. Uh, so he's the youngest professor at the university. He is a brilliant, brilliant mind. And, um, and he tells his students, that there's a secret bond connecting our mind with nature. So instead of dividing the world into mind and matter, as philosophers have done for century, centuries, Schelling says everything is one. So the living and the non-living world are ruled by the same underlying principles. So everything from insects to stones, from frogs to rivers, from humans to mountains, everything, he says, is one big living organism. So he turns against the the mechanical models of nature, which had been kind of the explanations that Isaac Newton, for example, had. That's the vision of nature that von Humboldt also has. And it's also what you see. You remember the photograph of the earth from space, the blue ball? Exactly. That's the earth is a single unified living organism. Exactly. So, so Schelling explains, Schelling gives us basically the philosophical foundation for that. Alexander von Humboldt sees these connections that kind of nature is this big entangled web of life on his, on his expeditions through South America. But the philosophical foundations can be found with Schelling. And because he says that humans and nature are the same, this is how he explains it. It means that when we go for a walk in nature, when we scramble up a hill, uh, we it's also always a self-discovery because the system of the mind is the same as the system of nature. All is one. And this is pretty much the opposite of what the Enlightenment thinkers had said, that they had a kind of much more rational approach to nature where everything had to be investigated from a so-called objective perspective. Now, so Schelling's idea is really a philosophy of oneness. Everything is one. And it is this philosophy of oneness that then becomes so important for the English romantics and the American transcendentalists. So we have, for example, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was so enthralled by the ideas that were coming out of Jena that in 1798, so the same year as the lyrical ballads were published, he traveled to Germany and he was determined to learn German and to meet his heroes in in Jena. Sadly, he runs out of money and he never makes it to Jena, but he learns German. And then when he returns to England after 10 months, he returns with a trunk full of German philosophy books. And the time in Germany really changed him. So he had left England 
as a poet, but he returned with a philosophical mind. And he lived and breathed the idea that were coming out of Jena. So he, he read Fichte's uh, philosophy of the self. He was deeply imp impressed by Schelling's ideas of the unity between self and nature, so much so that he translated pages and pages and pages of Schelling's work and then passed them on as his own. So he was he was accused by a friend, for example, of barefaced plagiarism because it was so obvious that he was you know, stealing these ideas. So or take the American transcendentalist Ralph Waldo Emerson, who thought Schelling to be a genius. And again, it is this this unity between the self and nature that becomes so important for Emerson. So when he writes in 1836 his essay Nature, which becomes the Transcendentalist Manifesto, um, which really introduced these ideas of the unity between self and nature to many Americans, it was it was heavily based on Schelling's um, idea. So we cannot underestimate the importance that the Yenas had had on these thinkers and really on our concept of nature too. Well, yes. I mean, I mean, doesn't Emerson go to the trouble of learning German so he can read the Jena set in, in the original? Exactly. So they, they learn German and, and Emerson's library is full of the works from the Jena set. I mean, he has the, he has the complete works of Schelling, of Fichte, the Schlegel brothers, Humboldt's work, Novalis work. I mean, they, they all, they all study and read them. Um, Henry David Thoreau, for example, is deeply influenced by Alexander von Humboldt's um, approach to nature because Humboldt in his work described nature as a scientist, but also as a poet. So he combined evocative landscape descriptions with scientific treatises. And that was something that Thoreau had really struggled with when he was writing, when he was writing Walden, because Thoreau was observing nature meticulously like a scientist, but he adored the beauty of nature. And he kind of felt like that the sciences really robbed nature of its beauty. And then he read Humboldt's books and he unpacked his manuscript for Walden and he rewrote Walden. So the Walden we know today is very much influenced by Alexander von Humboldt's approach to nature and the way he described nature. Well, Humboldt is a, a celebrity in America in the second half of the 19th century. I mean, there, there are all kinds of rivers, currents, towns, Plains named after Humboldt in the United States. Today he's almost forgotten, but he was the most famous scientist of his age. Every schoolchild in America knew Humboldt. Yeah, and um, and there was a whole generation of scientists and explorers who were deeply influenced by him. And and they, as they explored the West in in of the of North America, they named landscape features after Humboldt. So that's why you have a lot of places and mountains and rivers and lakes and, bay and bays named after Humboldt um, in the Western United States. Another person who had a large collection of the Jena Sets books is Freud. Yes, he so, had. I mean, yeah. the idea of self-consciousness, which eventually becomes psychotherapy, is, comes out of that same understanding of the self as the creator of the world. Exactly. So what's very important, I think, to remember is that the, the Jena set placed 
or gave the self the the power really to to be the ruler of the world and that's and that's something that has you know never gone away really i mean and, and for the better or the worse so you know we are a very selfish society and there has very very many negative sides but it was something that was very important for freud for example because schelling later wrote a lot also about consciousness and subconsciousness so all these um aspects kind of filtered down through different avenues in different aspects of our kind of modern life in the 20th century yes and, and that to read the papers today to read uh people talking about whatever happened to american democracy or what is the soul of america and, and so forth and so on the question of identity it comes out of the uh, Yes, so I think what 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 I'm trying to do with this book is to kind of show that I think they really I think it's not exaggerated to say that they changed um, our our world and I think it's impossible to imagine our lives kind of without the foundation of their kind of groundbreaking ideas. So they gave us this self determined self and the free will, and I think we're still empowered by their very daring leap into this self. But we live in this world today in which we, most of us, I would say almost all of us kind of have to tiptoe, you know, between free will and selfishness, between self-determination and narcissism. And I think underpinning are two crucial questions. One is, who am I as an individual and who am I as a member of a society? So how can I, how can I live a meaningful life in which I pursue my dreams but at the same time, be a morally good person. How can I reconcile my personal liberty with the demands of a society? And the pandemic is an excellent example for that. So millions of us gave up our basic rights because we believe you know, this is the thing to do for the greater good. But some of us didn't. Some of us said that their personal liberties were more important um, than the kind of the greater good. So so from the moment that Fichte put the self at the nexus of his philosophy, we had to also deal with the with the perils of this kind of newly emboldened um, self. But it's very important to under yeah. I think important to underline that Fichte never intended his ideas to be a narcissistic celebration of the self. Quite the opposite. He always insisted that this freedom that he had given to the self always came with our moral obligation. So freedom can elevate us over our base instinct. Freedom gives us the choice how to act and how to behave. So free, freedom comes with its twin, which is it, which is our moral duty. And, uh, and that's something that we sometimes forget today. So we are the selfish society. We, you know, there's a whole generation called the me generation. Self-fulfillment has become something like the inspirational mantra of our society. But that was not the original intention of this kind of philosophy of the self. The original intention was to create a better society, to liberate the self, to, be, to, to, to live in a free society. Well, I, I mean, this is why I think your book is so worthwhile, Andrea. I mean, certainly to me, because what you're talking about is is our attempts these days to walk the thin line between free will and selfishness, between self-determination and narcissism, between empathy and righteousness. And, and those two questions that you ask, I mean, who am I as an individual and who am I as a member of a group 
are the ones that are streaming you know, with Wagnerian force through the portals of the Internet. And, and uh, I, for one, am, 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 am grateful to you for this book. And so thank you, Andrea Wolf, for speaking with us today about your new book, Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. Thank you very much for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.